This is Alan Lovewell with Real Good Fish. Just wrapping up a day of fishing down in Big Sur. Watched the amazing sunrise over the hilltops and uh, caught all kinds of beautiful rockfish, lingcod, cabazon. Uh, they'll be going out to members and restaurants throughout the area. And you are currently listening to The Kyle Thurman Show. How many times I gotta tell ya, it's Tierman, not Thierman. I know it's spelled with a T-H, but you don't say Thomas, do ya? It's Thomas. That was a message from Alan Lovewell, and he was a guest back in episode 167, which is the only reason why I feel comfortable heckling him now. Alan is uh, responsible for Real Good Fish. They're a group that is working to diversify the species of fish that we eat because one of the big issues uh, that we have right now is there's only a market for a very small amount of fish. Uh, But when these fishermen go down with big nets, they catch all kinds of bycatch, right? It's fish that, that they can't sell, so they throw the fish back overboard dead. So what Alan and his group at Real Good Fish are working to do is diversify the amount, the species of fish that we eat and then do direct-to-delivery services. Um, and I recently signed up for it, and it works great. And um, it is teaching me all about those those swimmy little critters in our oceans. Um, so I told Alan, hey, man, next time you're out on the boat, you should send me a voice memo, which he did. So thanks, Alan. If any of you guys want to send a voice memo, you can record it on your phone. Just trying to keep it under a minute and send it to info at kyle.surf. Just let me know some details about where you are in this moment right now, what the scenery looks like, what it smells like, how you're doing, and we will blast it out to this little community of ours. I had uh, a little insight that I figured I'd share with you Um, down in LA. It was one of those kind of life lesson insights. Uh, I'm down in LA doing a lot of pre-production for the 2019 Motherfucker Awards, which is going to be on December 3rd this year. And I was looking at theater options. And last year, we did it at this amazing small theater uh, in Inglewood, California. It had a really good vibe. The people were cool. We sold out the show. And this year, we were thinking of potentially doing it at a bigger theater. Um, So we looked at another theater in downtown L.A. that holds about five times as many people. And it was amazing. And I got stars in my eyes. And I thought, man, this is going to be so cool if we can sell out this whole theater. We'll get more media attention around these issues. Um, We'll be able to legitimize it in some way. And then I started thinking about the amount of stress it would be to try and sell out this massive theater. So I was caught between, you know, do we try and do it at this huge theater uh, and go as big as possible? Or do we do it at a smaller theater that we know already works and has been proven? Um, And I was bouncing around all these different scenarios in my head So I made a list of risks and reward um, for either scenario. And I decided 
after doing the, the risk and reward to keep the show at the smaller theater. Um, because I've been toying around with this idea of what you lose by going too big. Um, in really any sense of life, you can take that, that experiment, that thought experiment to fame. You know, people who become too famous can't go to the beach anymore because they're too widely recognized. Um, people, you know, and, and events that get too big too quickly can lose a certain vibe and soul and homegrown community feeling that I feel was very important in regards to making last year's event successful. So all that is to say, I decided to keep it at the smaller theater, but uh, zooming out, it felt like a good lesson to take with me as I move forward. And uh, it's kind of antithetical to what we are taught to, uh, to believe and strive for in the society. You want to go as big as possible, get too big to fail. And then more times often than not, we fail when we do that. I read uh, Yvonne Chouinard's book, Let My People Go Surfing, and a major theme in that book was his effort to keep Patagonia small. And I think that, uh, uh, I mean, obviously Patagonia is a huge company now, but a lot of that work to pull back on the reins when you get stars in your eyes can allow for uh, longevity and true sustainability. So that was what happened to me this last week. Um, we've been getting a ton of interest from great comedians and presenters. I've been talking with researchers, investigative journalists, picking good issues um, that will be factually accurate and fair. That's another big um, big thing that's important to me with this year's MOFAs is um, that you know these companies and individuals that we call out, we call out for good reason. We're not just slinging mud in an, op in an opinionated way. Um, and I'm happy to say that there are still investigative journalists out there that are scrupulous with their research and, um, they get a laugh out of this idea. So they've, um, signed on and are helping in a really major way. So it's going to be exciting. Back up to Santa Cruz, uh, in the next couple days, I have an interview with Charles Eisenstein tomorrow afternoon uh he is the author of the book sacred economics and he was recommended to me by one of you um so if any of you have recommendations for more guests i really love them i, I tend to get very good recommendations from this group uh and the best way to do that is to go to my website kyle.surf click on one of the podcasts and just write a comment there there's an area where you can write comments and that's the best way to make sure that i see it um, and this was an epic podcast. Ben Horton is, uh, one of the smartest people I know a little bit more about him. He is a Nat Geo photographer and his passion is to use photography as a means to inspire people to take stewardship of the planet. He started his career at Nat Geo by telling the story of the sharks off of Cocos Island. 
He traced illegal fishing industry from Costa Rica to China, and as a result of his work, it helped to increase the park boundaries and protection of two of Costa Rica's national parks. He was awarded the Nat Geo Society Society's first ever Young Explorer grant for his work, and he has since moved on to receive a number of other Nat Geo grants, assignments, and recently started a documentary for Nat Geo featuring his work in Thailand. Ben is based here in Los Angeles, where he works primarily on adventure campaigns. Uh, This is the second podcast I've done with Ben. The first one I did was with Ben and his brother, Jesse, who is an elk hunting guide. Both these guys are such badasses. They're they're the kinds of people you you wish you didn't like because they're they're so good at what they do and the lives that they lead are so fucking adventurous. But then they both Ben and his brother turn out to be highly articulate, thoughtful, and curious people as well. And you're like, fuck, damn, you're just good people through and through, and you go on crazy adventures. <laughs> So, uh, despite my best efforts to not like Ben Horton, I have fallen in love with him. Uh, so, I hope that you enjoy this podcast. Once again, you can reach out to me anytime on my website, kyle.surf, in the comments section. And without further ado, please welcome to the show, Nacho photographer, Ben Horton. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. So um, this reminds me of a meeting I had with National Geographic about 10 years ago where they brought me in and said, how, how can we get your generation more interested in National Geographic? Um, so I took them to, and this was right after Planet Earth came out, took them to Planet Earth, the scene of the shark jumping out of the water, and somebody had uploaded it on YouTube. I was in South Africa, right? Yeah. So I, somebody had uploaded it on YouTube and it had like 30,000 views. I said, now watch this. And I went to the making of catching the jump sharking, the the shark jumping, jumping out yeah. of the water and had like 3 million views. Yeah. It's like, we don't really, we want to know what you had to go through to get the shot more than we want to see the shot. Yeah. And they looked at me and said, we've been trying to take that out of it for the last 30 years. And it wasn't until like eight years later, they started actually trying it. Yeah. I think that if there's some kind of narrative around the making of and a, a thoughtful narrative around that struggle, um, it can enrich the whole story. I don't like it when it's just sloppy. Like yeah. you can tell they just didn't take the time to set up the shot. So there's just someone's shoe in it or something <laughs> like that. Like that doesn't add anything to right. it. But um, we all like to learn and we all like to see other people's process. Right. And I certainly, like one thing I love about podcasting is I get to sit down with um People, you know, every once in a while I have a successful person on, not like you, but you know, <laughs> someone who people are like, I can't imagine being like that person. Those people. <laughs> Those people. <laughs> and I get to ask them about their process. And I, I think that when you can begin to understand the decisions that people were making to make it to get to that point, it can um, allow you to see yourself in their shoes. Yeah. I think um, one of the big things that I've learned this year 
is that fear comes from not understanding something, mm. right? And so whether that fear is trying to get a job or to dive into a cave two kilometers deep for you know an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, um, everything seems so scary until you actually understand it enough to do it. That's swimming with sharks, that's anything. So you know this concept that I'm working on right now is basically based on evolving through that fear. And you, you get to watch me go from, I'm terrified, to, you know, through the learning process and then to executing something with skill and that takes it out of the thrill sport genre and into the, you know, I've actually built up the technique that I need to do this. Right. So uh, give a little background on what it is that you're trying to do right now. Okay. Um, right now I am in the process of writing and selling a, a TV series that's kind of like, I don't want to give too much away, you know, in case some executives listening to this, but um the idea is using extreme sports to get into places and photograph things that have been previously unphotographable, unfilmable, um, because it's so technically challenging to get there. You know, the inside of a volcano, for instance. Like, it's been done a few times, but um, that's one of the episodes we're working on. Or um, freediving with anaconda, um, paragliding with condors and photo- photographing them from the air, because... When you're when you're flying in the air, you're not seen as a threat. And they'll come and they'll thermal with you. They'll be 10, 15 feet away from you in the air. And I just have to get the skill level now to actually right. work a camera while doing that. But but you have to get good at paragliding to be able to get those shots. Yeah. So I've been training for the last year, learning to paraglide, and it has been one of the biggest roller coaster sports I've ever done, man. Right. <laughs> I keep telling people it's surfing the sky. It kind of, I, I don't want to necessarily say this with you because you're a real big wave surfer, but the feeling I get is it's big wave surfing, but you can't see the wave coming. You just start to feel it and then you have to catch it and you're not quite sure how big it's going to be. Wow. <laughs> okay. So you're up there and obviously it's not just uh, a, the same um, amount of wind coming at you. No. So like you'll be in slack wind and then all of a sudden it'll take yeah. you. How does that work? So, you know, if you're going to do a big mountain flight, you don't want a lot of wind. You want just enough to get the wing up over your head and then you run off the mountain, right? Because wind can be, can be really dangerous. It can blow you back over the mountain and then you're in the rotor and you're falling out of the sky. But you still might have a 10 mile an hour breeze in your face. But what that is, is that's the hot air rolling up out of the valley. And then you try to catch that and that's a thermal. And then when that releases from the top of the mountain, you have to do your circles inside of that lift and go up. Or you can be flying along and let's say you're in sinking air and then all of a sudden you run headlong into one of those and it's going up at three meters a second. It feels like somebody has just grabbed you by your belt and is just, it's like dropping into the biggest, steepest wave ever. Yeah. You're just getting launched into the sky. And I've, I've hit them so strong that they basically collapse my wing, but I'm still going up. <laughs> oh, man. I know that. I, I told you this, this year I messed myself up just yeah. kiteboarding. And the feeling of getting, of, of being taken by wind and like in the grasp of wind, I had never experienced that before. Yeah. I mean, it, it felt like getting slingshot, like, as fast, like, human slingshot, yeah. basically. Wow, man. How cool also that you get to be learning these new skills as an adult. Like, yeah. conscious learning process. <laughs> but I keep 
I keep thinking I wish I would have started this when I was in my 20s and I didn't have the fear. Because I, I can honestly say paragliding is one of the scariest things I've ever done. Um, it's just there's so many unknowns. And I've been in a few situations, you might want to say, that you're just like, I would do anything to be on the ground right now. But I'm not going to be, so I have to keep flying. Um, there's no giving up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> like, I'm 2,000 feet in the air. I'm going backwards and up. And if I go back another 100 feet, I'm going to get dropped out of the sky because that same wind that's going up on this side of the mountain is getting sucked down on the other. And, you know. You <sighs> love sports where there's no giving up. Yeah. <laughs> like you can, you can't call it quits. Right. It's not like a soccer game or a football yeah. game or even I a even a fight, I'm, you know? I'm, like you there's no t- timeout. I'm over this. Yeah. Like you, you like kayaking down rivers. Uh-huh. You can't call timeout <laughs> on the river. Spelunking. Uh you can kind of do it with snowboarding, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Uh but and then surfing. surfing. I mean when when you've got a set coming and you're inside, there's yeah. no giving up. Yep. Right? You know? No timeout. There's no timeouts, Brody. You can't <laughs> just call it. The real reason for that is I have a lazy streak. Mm. I don't run. Like I hate hiking, but I'll I'll hike, you know, twenty miles if it means I get to paraglide off the top of that mountain. Right. Um, you know, I don't like working out. I love rock climbing. Um but it's hard to push through that physical barrier for right. me. So I pick sports that force me to do it. So tr- now that you have tried to, now that you're learning paragliding, um, s- underwater spelunking, is that cave the correct? Diving. Cave diving. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I prefer underwater spelunking. I think <laughs> I might <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah. um, what have you done to actually learning these skills? Because you have your photography business, you have mm-hmm. a lot of distractions in your life. Yeah. And as an adult, uh, I think it can be really difficult to really commit yourself to learning a new skill mm-hmm. and actually getting good at it. Has there been any rearranging in your life or, or new commitments or anything like that that you've had to reprioritize to actually learn these skills? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, honestly, so my TV, my last TV show ended or the first season ended a year ago. And I made a good chunk of change on that. So I haven't really been working very much. I've dedicated this year to getting these skills up to par because we start filming the next season in September. Um, And I'm supposed to fly off of a mountain in China that nobody's ever flown off before. And I want to know for sure that I have the skills to do that. And then I'm supposed to go cave diving in a low visibility cave that nobody's ever explored. Um, so I want to know for sure that I know how to get myself back out of that cave. Um, to me, that's, you know what it's taken? It's taking, it's taken learning how to learn again. Right. Um, and I haven't really experienced that in 15, 20 years. Um, just really focusing in on what it feels like to retain the knowledge. And I think it's easy when you're interested in something. I've read every book on paragliding. I've watched every YouTube instructional video. I even go watch the accident videos in slow motion to try to see if I can catch before they do uh, what's going to go wrong and what they do wrong, right? And it's mental reps. It's just, you know, 
my brain has gone over it so many times that when it happens to me, I respond appropriately. Mm. Um, and then with cave diving, you know, I just got back from a month training in Tulum with, I just by chance got one of the best guys in the world to teach me. Like first guy I called, you know, I could not have asked for a better instructor. Um, he's one of the like OG cave explorers from in, in Mexico. He's a Swedish guy, Kim Davidson. And we'd be, you know, an hour into a cave. And this is after I'd learned all of the mathematics behind, you know, gas consumption and how to mix my gas for different depths and, um, you know, how much to use on my way in and save for my way out. And then I'd be in there and he'd rip my mask off and then free flow one of my regulators and then start inflating my BC so I'm rocketing towards the ceiling, rip a fin off, and, you know, I'd have to be managing all these things an hour into a cave. And then he'd put a blindfold on me and I'd have to navigate out of the cave blindfolded with all of these things wrong, right? So if this ever happens to me in a real cave, I mean, there's no way I'm going to have four or five things go wrong at a time. I'm hoping I'm just going to be laughing, looking around, waiting to see Kim jump out of the bushes somewhere, you know, like, cause he's, right. it, it, they call it stress testing and they get you to the point where you break or shut down. And I only hit that once and it was just shutting down. I just, I think I was pinned on the ceiling because he'd overinflated my BC so much, but I was also trying to like hold another guy who was blindfolded, keep another hand on the line. He'd free flowed one of my tanks. And I just, I stopped and I looked at him and I flipped him off. I was just like, <laughs> there's just, nothing for me yeah. to do here. And that's a legit signal when you can't talk. Right. <laughs> um, have you noticed how you retain the information best when you're learning in the classroom? Like you obviously need to retain information on, you know, different, uh, I, mean, yeah. I, I don't know actually. Yeah. Um, have you noticed how you can retain that information best? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, it's writing it down. Hmm. It doesn't matter if I ever read it again. Reading it again won't help me anything. It won't help me any more than the act of writing it down. Because writing it down in a way that I understand it is kind of like taking the knowledge that he's giving me, interpreting it, and then teaching it or you know putting it back out, yep. um, which I think is part of the real learning process. And then after that, it's just execution. So going into the cave and having him put me through all these drills. Nice. Yeah. And then have you found uh, yourself go blank at all? Like uh, <laughs> the moment before public speaking when you have the whole speech and you get on stage and you think, I cannot remember what I was supposed to say. Have you had any yeah, of those experiences? I have. Um, I've definitely, you know, in the beginning of the cave diving course, I definitely had a few of those moments. Um and it's not the kind of thing where you can be like, I'm just going to fake it, you know? I'm right. just going to go ahead. Yeah. You have to stop and say like, hey, okay, I did. I think I'm doing my math wrong. But that's why, you know, unless you're solo diving, everything gets bounced off of a partner. You check everybody. Everybody checks everybody else. Um, you know, I'm looking at their gas consumption. He's looking at mine. And... You know, you're you're evaluating your friend throughout the dive. You know, if one guy's in front and one guy's in behind in the back, if you feel like he's not really paying attention, you can just kind of hide your light for a second and see if he notices, mm. right? And that's one of the things that my instructor did to me, um, because you know, if you're in front and you don't notice that your buddy behind you is having a total meltdown, 
he might die. Right. <laughs> right. Or if you're in the back, you you might die. Yeah. Situational um, awareness. You, you know, uh, I think I was a lot more sloppy of a personality and a lot more sloppy of a learner before I started surfing bigger waves. Mm-hmm. And I'm only noticing this now. I think that when I started raising the stakes a bit more, it taught me to be a lot more focused on learning in a systematic way. And then I also became friends with some guys um, to name two, Tyler Fox and Greg Long, who are both really good big wave surfers. And they're very um, systematic and calculated about their approach. And I think that from when I was a kid skating and just being like, cool, I'm going to send it. Woo. Like my, yeah. <laughs> my strength was always just going for it. Yeah. And like, Hey, I have four broken arms, but yeah. <laughs> had some fun to actually shifting that learning style has been a really great life lesson that you can shift and improve your mm-hmm. learning style as you get older. You're not yeah. married to how you learned when you were nine years old. I have abandoned the send it mentality. Yeah. I kind of tried it a couple times with paragliding and got in situations. I was like, I just really don't want to be here. So now I've turned into like a total weather geek um, like yeah. I'm looking at lapse rates in the air and inversions and, you know, because, um. <laughs> because death is no longer out there. Right. When you're a kid, it's death yeah. happens to people, but yeah. not to you. Yeah. But when you've been involved in these sports and your friends have died and you've had like me, I've had so many injuries, it's hard to count. You know, I've been in hospitals and I've been laid up. Um, it's not worth it. I heard a really good quote um, that I, just, I heard on a podcast, so I apologize for not giving credit, but it's, everyone has two lives, and their second begins when they realize they only have one. Yep. Yeah. So last time we were on this podcast, um, I was on with my brother, and he calls me the other day. He says, hey, I'm going to be in Tahiti in January. I'd love for you to come out. I was like, yeah, of course. He's like, it to be really special because it's my 40th birthday. Now, being the younger brother, I always thought of him and I as the same age. So I said to him, wait, we're 40? (laughs) (laughs) And, like, I know my 40s are going to be awesome. I know they're going to be probably better than my 30s, which have been better than my 20s. But it's so nice to have it to look forward to. Mm. So I think for me, I know death is around the corner, you know, and I want to fit as much as possible into life while I still can. Yeah. And you can do that by making these smaller circles and Mm -hmm. learning things systematically. I think that one of the most pernicious aspects of our whole culture is this false idea that learning is for kids. Mm -hmm. And that then when you graduate and, and different people believe that learning stops at different times. Some people believe that it stops when they're out of high school, some out of college, some when you have kids. You know, you mm-hmm. see people have kids and then they lose their thing. They lose that zest and that real intensity for the thing that they love. And then you see the people that are 90 years old and they still act like kids yeah. and they're sharp as tax because they never let go of that thing. You know, that, that makes me think of my mom. She, you know, after my dad passed away and she left the cult that we were raised in, she had this huge void in her life. And then next thing you know, she decides she's going to go join Mountain Rescue. And she starts learning all the different rescue systems and she starts learning about how to manage everything and, you know, who to send out and where. And now she's like one of the higher ups in Vail Mountain Rescue. 
and seeing the excitement on her face from learning about knots, right. <laughs> it just makes me realize how learning is what keeps us younger and alive and interested in life. Yeah. Um, I know for me, over the last 10, 15 years, I have been really searching for something new. Could not figure out a sport that I really wanted to partake in. I tried kiteboarding. Um, I've surfed for a long time, but I'm a terrible surfer. Um, you know, rock climbing, My I kind of feel like I've hit my limit because I'm not willing to risk more than I'm already risking. Um, and then when I found paragliding and when I found cave diving, and I'll tell you a little story about finding cave diving in a minute, but um, I just feel so much more reinvigorated for life. Like I'm checking the reports on my computer every day, even if I can't go, I'm driving two hours for maybes, you know, and it's exciting. And I, you know, even if I only get a 20 minute flight yesterday, I drove out to Malibu and everything was just perfect. I took off and within 30 seconds, I was six, 700 feet up over where I launched. Yeah. You know? It's like you check a spiritual box that you didn't know was missing yeah. until you get it. Yeah. Until, and you're like, yes. Yeah. Oh. But, but I've driven out there probably 30 times right. and not gotten it. Right. You know, but it still keeps bringing me back. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great, man. Um, so tell me the story about oh, cave diving. Well, it's just, it's finding it. Um, you know, I'm supposed to do this cave diving thing for the TV show and I tried to talk them out of it over and over and over again. I'm like, I have no interest in cave diving. It's suicide. Like, it's so stupid. Why would we do this? Why would we put ourselves at risk? And then I said, fine, I'll do it, but you have to pay for me to get completely trained all the way from, you know, open water, because it's been 20 years since I did my advanced course, from open water to full cave. And as soon as I started going into these caves and seeing this underwater world, that I had no idea was there. And just understanding where all of the deaths and dangers come from, it's like, oh, this is amazing. You know, over 90% of cave diving deaths happen because just your typical open water diver decides that they're gonna swim into a, a hole in the side of the pond over here, you know? And they have no idea what they're doing. And when you hit zero visibility in a cave, you have to put your your hand on your mask in order to see it. Like, it's that bad. So if you go in there without understanding that your bubbles knock silt off of the ceiling, and if you swim like you swim in the ocean, you're just kicking up dirt on the floor, and you don't know how to navigate your way back out, like, yeah, that's, that's terrifying. That's super dangerous. <laughs> like, very few people make it back from that. We did drills in there where I had to find the line, you know, and I... I, I saw footage of me where, you know, I lost the line, he blindfolds me, drop to the bottom, and I have to create an anchor so that I, I can run a line from that anchor so I know where I've been and get back to that point. And literally, I'm, I'm searching in circles while I'm trying to do a straight line. And it just, the level of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Disconnect, um, where you just, like you cannot interpret what's around you because you're floating in water. And even if you're touching the ground, like the slightest thing, you don't feel yourself moving. And I did a 180 degree turn within 10 feet and started going the opposite direction of the line I was looking for. Wow. <laughs> Man, um, have you ever heard of the book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? I've so, heard of it. So it's a, it's a book and then it was made into a movie about a guy who gets... Um, 
a disease, I, I forget what the name of it is, where he's completely paralyzed and he can only move his eyes, but his mind works perfectly. And then it's a book about his experience in there. <laughs> and it, your story made me think of that because there is this point that I'm imagining where you can't see anything and you basically don't exist except yeah. for the conversation in your mind. Yeah. And that is all of a sudden becomes the most potent and real thing in your existence because everything else is darkness. And it's fun to play with that. So after graduating, after getting all of the training, um, Kim understood that I wasn't just somebody who wanted to follow a line into a cave. So we went exploring. We went into a cave that somebody had been in 20 years ago, but we went to the end of what they explored and then explored beyond that. And that, to me, is why you would go cave diving. Not, not to follow a line, right? But to see what's around the next corner. Um, and there was one section he wasn't sure if it was going to go through, but it was really tight, and you were you know, squeezing through these little narrow passageways. And he told me to wait behind um, until he could kind of get a look around the corner. And so he went around the corner, but he had to go a little way before he could turn around to signal me. So I'm sitting there alone in this cave, you know, we're the first people ever at this point. And I just decide I'm turning my light off. I'm just going to flip it off. I'm going to sit here in true darkness, floating in the water column. So I'm not even touching the ground or the wall or anything. And I lasted about... 15 seconds that felt like about 15 minutes, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> uh, your own personal sensory deprivation tank. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it is. You're just like, what weighs up? You know, Kim was telling me he had some people that when he blindfolded them, they'd flip upside down and start swimming without even understanding that they were upside down. <laughs> Whoa. Wow, man. Um, so you are going off into, when did you say this shooting starts for the cave shooting thing? Well, I'm doing paragliding in September. I think the cave diving will be in either October or November. Okay. It's a three-month process. And what is the science that you're going to be bringing back? I don't think we're doing science okay. on that episode. I think what we're doing is just exploring. Okay. Um, go, I mean, it's real exploring. This right. is you know going somewhere nobody's ever been. Um, but I am working on putting together a project or at least being a part of this project, um, depending on if this other guy gets a grant for it or not, um, exploring some new caves in Mexico and connecting it to a really important biosphere and showing that what happens upstream, um, everything goes into the groundwater there, but the groundwater flows directly into this World Heritage Site. And then, you know, they're going to be doing all this work up upstream so working with scientists to put projects like that together right um i that's, like that's yeah. where i want to go with cave that's diving. great man yeah. i love the concept that you brought up of science being responsible for some of the best adventures and you can take that into the ocean a lot of sailors now are doing um plastic science out in the mm -hmm. middle of the ocean you know you, if you can get good enough to where you can safely go where very few men or women yeah. have gone before, all of a sudden you can bring back data from those yeah. areas of our planet and it can be really useful to science and it can further those conversations. I think it also just makes it sexy yeah. in a way that's really important <laughs> for our culture. Yeah. Like sci scientists need to be superheroes because mm -hmm. I'm booking um, different celebrities and presenters for the 2019 Motherfucker Awards. <laughs> and it's so funny because... Um, 
you know, we're working with this PR agency and they're talking about like, you need to get the biggest celebrities you can. And, you know, so then it'll be a big press event. And the people that I'm so much more starstruck by are like, the Harvard Law professors <laughs> that like <laughs> helped reinvigorate our democracy. That's what and celebrities the, should be. Right. Right? Like I personally when I see a famous actor, I'm like, hey, there's that guy that's paid to make me entertained. Right. Yeah. You, you <laughs> pretend. Cool. Yeah. That's great. But I don't like, really want your political opinions. <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, why? <laughs> Didn't you play the rat from Ratatouille? Like, what? <laughs> But yeah, but then you meet people that are really experts in their craft yeah. and know how to talk about it with with real skill. I mean, those are the people that I get starstruck by. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great uh there's a great sticker in a local coffee shop that I go to that says stop making stupid people famous. <laughs> I am thinking about putting it on the bumper sticker just to drive around if LA. You, that will be the only bumper sticker I will put on my truck right. if you get that made. <laughs> I will. I'll send you one. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, but I, I, it's it's great that you've been able to uh, organize your life around being a conduit between adventurers and scientists. Mm -hmm. I think that it uh, it keeps it really fun to be able to activate both the both your physical and mental side. Yeah, and you know, I didn't finish college. I didn't I didn't go to college. I got my GED and started working as a photographer at eighteen. Right. Um, but science has always interested me. So I've always found ways to use my skills in exploration, whether that's climbing or kayaking or just surviving on an uninhabited island, um, to collect data for scientists. Um, and I think we talked about this last time I was on the podcast with working on Cocos Island with the sharks. Um, you know, that's my way of doing something with my skill set because a lot of these scientists may not know how to cave dive. They may not be able to get into this super remote riverway or um, survive on an island for a month. Um, and that's that's what I can bring to the table. So I really like finding ways to kind of be the hub of a wheel that may, helps make everything happen and come together. Yeah, I like that. It, I think also from a narrative perspective, um, there are different kinds of stories, right, that, that draw us in. There's man versus nature man versus society, man versus self. And yeah. when you tie in both science and adventure, it becomes um, a lot A lot of those narratives come into play very naturally that draw yeah. us in. It's like, whoa, he wants to get to the top of the mountain for himself, but also for the world. Yeah, and I personally, like, I'm kind of tired of the whole, I'm going to climb Mount Everest because it's high. Right. You know, like... No, give me a cool reason why. What are we learning from this as a culture? Like, if you look back at the first guys to go to the North Pole or, you know, sailing around the world looking for the best place to watch a uh, solar eclipse from so you could figure out the distance to the sun or whatever it was. I, I don't remember the details, but, you know, that's where adventure really came from. Right. And for everyone listening in their car, that siren was on the podcast. So if you just pulled over on the side of the road, there is not an ambulance <laughs> behind you. <laughs> that was potentially in a different state or country. I siren. hate songs that put sirens in. It always it's freaks the me worst. out. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, man. It's like that fucking guy that did the motocross jet ski at Chopu. Yeah. And then fucking uh, apparently just left the 
the bike there and where people Oil were like, why did you want to do it? And he's like, I had a dream. It's like, dude, we all had dreams. Fuck off. Or the Guinness like, World Record, you know, using a ping pong paddle and bouncing a basketball and hiking, you know, first guy to climb Mount Everest with only one eye or, you know, like these records, I don't know. It makes me feel sometimes like there's not a lot left to explore. But then I take up paragliding and I realize that within 20 minutes of LA, there's mountains nobody's ever flown off. Right. Or cave diving. And I realize that if you di- if you drive 10 minutes from Tulum, it's unexplored. Yeah. Right? Like there's so few cave divers and they're working so hard just to explore what's there that, you know, 10, 15 minutes away, you can find a cenote nobody's ever been in and a whole cave system that people have never seen. And there's Macedon skulls in there. There's saber-toothed tiger skeletons. They found the oldest human remains in the Americas, 13,000 years old, in one of these cave systems. Because they were dry during the last ice age. Whoa. Just recently. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Man, do you know what's cool about the way you've set up your life, too, is that you have the time to learn a new skill before it gets shot. I think that a big issue that a lot of people run into now is they feel like they need to constantly... um, post what they're doing when they're doing it and mm-hmm. and kind of pretend that they've already gotten good at it before yeah. they really master it but i think that there's a real power in quiet excellence and and just you know doing it every day doing mm-hmm. it every day and then you reach a level where people want to hear about it and yeah. i think that that goes for for intellectual disciplines or uh, or physical disciplines. You know, and it's kind of like what you were talking about with this stupid Guinness Book World yeah. Record stuff. I was just on this tall building in downtown LA, and there's a building adjacent to us that was the same size, but it has this huge, like, 200-foot pole on top yeah. to m- call itself the tall <laughs> building, <laughs> tallest building in LA. And, and I'm so like, what? that is the fucking greatest metaphor for not really... Yeah doing it yeah i didn't really get good at it but then i I, it's like all the the photoshopped instagram models right exactly (laughs) like everything my pictures are beautiful but you know i have a million followers now what yeah some (laughs) of my favorite podcasts are with the underground badasses that just do it and i can i have to like cajole them to get behind the mic and then they have the best fucking stories that no one ever knows about i feel like in every sport there's the guy that doesn't like being seen being around other people being famous who's better than everybody else yeah you know like it's hard for me to say this with like the kelly slaters (laughs) out there but there's somebody out there that just he's so good but he's surfing some break that we've never heard of right now and you know the next thing he says we should make a show about that guy. <laughs> Finding that guy. Let's find that guy and make him famous. <laughs> He's been able to stay under the radar. Maybe that's He's why I'm trying all these different sports is to find the one that I'm the best in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's been able to endure, but can he endure the fame? <laughs> His final I mean, test. To be honest, man, like with this TV show, I guess I'm famous in China right now. I I don't feel it. Big in, you're big yeah. in China. I, I mean, the show is worldwide, but in China in, in particular, it's had just like astronomical amount of views. Um, I like not being known where I live, you know? Like I like being able to walk down the street and I'm just another dude. Um, 
I have no desire to ever be famous. I don't actually even like being on camera, but doing this show is, well, for one thing, it's great money. But the other thing is like, dude, I got to climb a thousand foot ice fall in China. And then I got to go free diving in Hainan. And then I got to go into a cave that was unexplored. And now this year I get to do it all over again with three different adventures. That's so, so do they subtitle your voice in, in China? Chinese? Yeah. It's in like 80 languages. Whoa. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And is this the second season that you're doing it? And, mm-hmm. and what's the name of the show again? Extreme China. Extreme China. So it's, yeah, going to the most extreme places in China is, is the idea of the Got show. It. And did you come up with the show? They, they contacted me for this one. Okay. Yeah. So you had been working with Nat Geo mm-hmm. for a number of years, yeah. uh, doing photos for their magazine, and you were a part of different grant programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they contacted you, Nat Geo TV did, and said, yeah. hey, we want to make this show. Yeah, so the show is on National Geographic International. So the funny thing about it is it plays all across the world, but not in the U.S., <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of cool with me. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm, it's got hundreds of millions of views, but, you know, in the U.S., I have to send you a secret link mm. so you can watch the show. That's great, man. Yeah. So from 18, you went out and became a full-time photographer. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely starved a little bit. But um, honestly, I probably would say I didn't start making comfortable money until I was like 28. Mm. And how much would you say that was a part of you getting good enough to make the money? And how much would you say that was part of you understanding how to ask for the money um i'd say i mean i've definitely become a better photographer but back then i was still good i was good enough um to compete with people who were much older than me um the thing that i think holds most young creatives back is their age somebody else looks at them you know for me it was oh hey check this 21 year old kid out that's shooting some really cool stuff on shark poaching um at 21 i was the new young kid at 25 there was a newer younger kid so i stopped getting work right and then it wasn't until i hit like 28 29 30 where people like okay here's the experienced guy right right (laughs) so there was this down phase where i wasn't young enough and i wasn't old enough oh yeah that happens in the environmental world too you have any halfway decent idea and you're under 18 in the environmental movement you'll get every award under the sun (laughs) and some of them are like hey here's ten thousand dollars you just won and you're like "Woo, i'm a genius and then you hit 25 (laughs) and you're like chirp chirp tweet tweet (laughs) yeah but it's it's a good uh, process for people to go through. I think to to understand how much um, it's their ideas, how much it's their their work, and how much it's just them fitting into the right place right. at the right time. And you know, when it, when you say how much of it was me learning how to ask for money, that's still hard. Um, you know, a lot of the things I do, there's not really like a standard rate for. <laughs> um, but I had a really eye-opening year last year because last year, I don't know what it was, but just I got so many calls for big jobs. And I had, you know, three months for a TV show. I was shooting a whole campaign for the state of Utah. And so I just started thinking, okay, I've only got, you know, four days in between these two jobs. What would make me feel like totally stoked to take those four days to drive to this other state to do a shoot? 
20 grand, you know, and I would send the email without thinking it was going to happen. And then it would happen. It's like, wow, you know, five years ago, I would have said, you know, give me two grand, please. Yeah. And be so nervous and <laughs> yeah. checking your email every 10 yeah. minutes. And, to oh, see is that too much? Yeah. Like, um, so, I mean, there's something to be said for, you know, if you ask for a higher rate, they're going to think you're better. Yep. You know, um, if you charge somebody 500 bucks, you're never going to be their $50,000 guy. Um, but now, you know, I'm working on getting three or four huge jobs a year rather than 50 small jobs. Mm. Um, and the income is about the same. So it's like, man, so I can just put my time into four jobs. <laughs> and a lot of the time they're the same amount of work as these small jobs. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And that's, I think another one of the good things about getting older is you understand your learning process. You also understand what is going to allow you to work best and what conditions you can set up so that you'll actually be stoked on your life. Because the alternative is not only that you're overworked, but you're also resentful of the client. Yeah. I've noticed that, you know, it's, I come from photography where I'm in charge right? I've, most of my career, I've gone out and shot things. I've come up with a campaign and then I've sold it, um, instead of waiting around asking people to call me. Um, and I've noticed sometimes when I have a client, it's like, I'm not enjoying it as much. And I have to remember, wait a second, they're paying me. Like I love photography, but I'm not used to having a boss. Yeah. (laughs) And that's, everyone wants to feel a little anti-establishment from time to time. But when they're paying you, you got to suck it up. Like, uh, yeah, do like not being broke. That's nice. (laughs) I mean, I went through my phases where I was eating rice and friends of mine were letting me sleep on their couch. And, you know, I couldn't afford the gas to go to the meeting that could possibly get me the job. Hey, that's me, man. I'm sleeping on couches in LA, but then like trying to book huge celebrities for the motherfucker awards it's, and stuff. It's, it's pretty funny. It's really weird. I think both you and I are are in the creative space and in the adventure space, right? And it's like you get these huge chunks of money in, but they all have places they have to go. And you know, with photography and traveling around the world to tell these stories, it costs a lot. Yeah. It costs a lot of money. I wish I would have been a writer sometimes so I could just take a laptop, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's it's learn. you know, when I know that I'm going to have a good year this year, I still have stress because it's like, well, what if I don't get these jobs next year? Then what? Um, sometimes I would just kill to have a paycheck. But the freedom that I have, you can't put a price on that. Yeah. And you really decide to be in that game. I I had an experience recently where I was feeling just sorry for myself and overwhelmed and wasn't really sure if, you know, do I have four jobs or am I unemployed? Like, you know, one of those mornings where you're really not sure what you're doing. And uh, I was talking to my dad and he had a really good piece of it, of just a good insight for me. He said, you know, you're not really in the game of showing up to an office and getting a paycheck. Like, you deliberately decided not to play that game. And the game that you're in is a lot more risky and a lot less people do it. Yeah. But you deliberately decided to do this. So so own it. And it was a really interesting just flip of not comparing myself to the people who are going to work, getting a paycheck, which is, I think, also, it's great for a number of reasons if that's what... 
allows you to have less stress in your life or i mean you just got to find it out for your own, for yourself but like just owning that this is my life that i have yeah. cultivated to set up for myself i have worked so fucking hard so that i can get a call from a friend and say hey let's travel halfway around the world to chase this swell yeah like i've and, and it all makes it worth it yeah, when those, I can say yes to in that. In those moments, man, it's just like, you know, I don't care if after this I'm broke for a year because I get to have these experiences that other people will never have. You know, the amount of experiences I've had in my life, like I am extremely lucky, although I don't like to use the word luck because I've worked really hard for it. But from an outside perspective, I'm just screwing off around the world and right. you know like <laughs> people don't understand there's a reason you get paid to do this stuff like i work my ass off um and my conversations are with china and singapore and mexico and you know all hours of the night skype calls at three o'clock in the morning and i just i could not be the person that wakes up every day puts on my suit goes to a job i would be miserable some people love it they lo and I get why they love it because there's security in that. But the thing that stresses me out is if for some reason I couldn't do what I do, I don't really have anything else lined up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Like I don't I don't know what is my fallback. And I think not having a fallback is one of the things that makes people successful. Yeah. That's because you're not practicing. It's yeah. not like, oh, this is just a test run. It may it raises the stakes so that this is real life and you really need to do your best in yeah. this moment. Yeah. And I mean that's that's kids moving out of their out of their parents' house and no longer getting an allowance, right? It's like, oh, I have to work. I have to make this work. That's um, you know, I forget where I read it, but I was reading about the one common thing between a lot of different billionaires is they put 100% in. They didn't say, I'm going to start this side project. They lived in their garages, and they were broke until it worked, right? They didn't have something to fall back on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there is, um, there, that is a strategy that can, can work for people. You know, I think that our world is changing in a way where there are going to be more and more people who are in our line of work, um, because there's a lot of time wasted mm -hmm. driving to an office and working there all day and then driving home. So and for a minute, a lot of money wasted and in a that lot too. of money wasted in that too. And I, um, I was listening to a podcast I listened to like four times. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's a, a Joe Rogan podcast with, um, Naval Ravikant. He's a, a Silicon Valley investor, but he's just a really brilliant thinker. And he, he, um, predicts that in the future there's going to be what he calls a gig economy where you wake up and your phone um, has five different potential clients that you could work for, kind of like Uber does right mm -hmm. now, but it'll be really high-quality work. Yeah. So it could be a high-paying photography client. It could be yeah. you know, you're a filmmaker or an editor. You either take the job or you don't. There's a contract right there. Mm -hmm. You work with a number of people, but most likely it'll be a remote situation. And then when you're done, you get your paycheck and you turn your phone off and you go travel for a few weeks. <laughs> So I, but I think that the skills that you have had to cultivate on your own in this world that's still kind of emerging, like self-discipline, right? Like mm -hmm. you don't learn self-discipline in school. You learn to get taught right. from someone and, and regurgitate that information, which is like 
the opposite of the skill. It's almost like skill. you just learn to retain knowledge for a certain amount of time. Yeah, <laughs> and then forget it, yeah. right? But but what you're doing right now is you know you're learning how to paraglide. You're learning how to underwater speed lunk. <laughs> but it's this. You have a really um, far out deadline that you need to meet. And you have no one that's really watching over you. Yeah. It's just on yourself. And it's a really fucking high stakes deadline. Either you are going to pull it off or you're mm-hmm. not. And not means potentially dying. Yeah. But you've cultivated this skill since you were 18 or maybe younger to meet those deadlines and know what markers you need to check off so that you can make that happen. Yeah. Like in a way, it's not that much different than just getting the photos in on time. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I forget who said it, but the harder I work, the luckier I get, you know, (laughs) I I heard one where it's where it's uh, the richer I get, the funnier I get (laughs) because Because people laugh at your jokes. You're so brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're hilarious. Richard, another one. (laughs) And that reminds me of when you laugh at other people's jokes, that makes them think you have a good sense of humor. Right. Yes. (laughs) Totally. Or or if you ask someone a lot of questions, they leave and say, you're so smart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You you let me talk about myself for so long. I love you. Really smart guy. The best thing about having a podcast is this strange little mental jujitsu. You just ask someone questions. They can be just standard out of the box questions. And after after it, people are like, wow, he's so insightful. I'm so insightful. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, you know what I mean, though, about like meeting deadlines and cultivate. I feel like cultivating Mm -hmm. that skill is so important. So when you say that, uh, you don't necessarily have a fallback. Your fallback is the art of learning. Right. Right? Your yeah. fallback is your ability to teach yourself something new. Yeah, and I, I mean, it does all apply to different businesses across the board. Like, I know how to use a computer. I know how to run a business. I know how to manage people. I know how to produce. I know how to make things happen in countries where people have no idea why you're trying to do what you're doing. Um, I guess, you know, it's... I think we're, we might be going to this world where you just kind of have to make things up as you go along. Like people have to say, what do I want to do and make it happen? Um, which, you know, the thought that was in my head while you were talking a minute ago is with that gig economy, like how how much would we save, eco, you know, in terms of pollution, car exhaust, electronic, electricity, et cetera, if every job that could be done at home was done at home, yeah, <laughs> like there's there's global warming, you know, right there. There's one major thing we can do is stop requiring people to put on a tie and come into an office that's an hour commute away. Yeah, and it's it's really just a simplification process. Mm-hmm. I think that um, a really important question that uh, people should ask themselves, and I've had to ask myself a ton producing the MOFAs, is how how can I make this easier? Mm-hmm. How can I simplify this process? What's the most important thing that I need to get done to pull this off? What's the and one thing I can do that can make three things fall into place? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and make those other three things disappear from yeah. my life, right? And I, <laughs> and I think that you can apply that to home office space. You know, you can apply it to get, you know, getting jobs done. But yeah, asking those, those really smart questions of how you can simplify your life. Like, what would it look like if I didn't drive to work? You know, what would it look like if I took three jobs a year instead of 30? Yeah. 
<laughs> and and then man, all of a sudden you uh, you really get on the offense a lot more, and it's that's a fun space to be because yeah. I, as you said at the in the beginning, fear is just a lack of understanding something, mm-hmm. and I think that. Um, when I feel most afraid in my life, it's that overwhelm and lack of understanding all of the moving parts. Right. So the more I can simplify my life, the less fearful I get. Yeah. And that fear of, you know, what's going to happen next year or the year after that or my retirement, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we can do to really understand where we are with the kinds of lives that you and I live. But I mean, for me, it's just knowing that the things that I'm doing, you know, when I can't go out and go underwater spelunking <laughs> or paragliding or surfing, or if I'm not strong enough to go shoot an adventure story somewhere, I can write books and I can put, you know, these photos from all of these adventures I've been having into these books, if they're still books at this point. <laughs> I think books are coming back. I, I think they'll be around yeah, um, in some form or another, but... You know, that's I guess that's kind of my fallback is building up these stories. I've given hundreds of lectures in my life, uh, mostly on a few of the projects that I did, lecture series and tours. But, um, man, to be able to just tell stories for a living, um, I think that's where it's at for me in the older older years. I want to hear about your relationship with your mentor, who is one of the great storytellers of our time. Uh, Wade? Wade. Yeah. Um, Wade, Wade and I met when I was Wade Davis, Wade Davis. Yeah. Wade Davis. Check out Wade Davis's TED talk. He's a legend. Yeah. He's, what are the books that he's written? He's written so many books, but the first book that he wrote, I think it was the first book he wrote was the serpent and the rainbow. Um, the story of the origin of zombies in Haiti. And uh, what he did is he went out there as a ethnobotanist. I don't, I don't think he likes that term, but um, he went out there and actually researched what they were doing to make zombies. And they were using um, a toad poison and pufferfish poison to make these people appear dead for like three days. And then, you know, he brought all of these different poisons back with him and they got researched and ended up being used for, you know, medical research. Um, but Wade was the guy that got me introduced at National Geographic. Um, actually, his daughter just stopped by a couple days ago, and she's just like him, just incredible mind. Um, but, yeah, he took me in at a younger age. Intro- How did you guys meet? I was shooting. I was the second camera on an ad campaign, and they were also filming an IMAX at the same time in the Grand Canyon. Uh, the job was for Teva, the sandal company. And he and his daughter were the um, talent. I just got a new puppy, and she's digging in the yard right next to me, and she knows that I can't. <laughs> she's just out of your reach. She's just out of my reach, and she's yeah. loving being able to dig in the yard she, for the first we're time. We're looking at a little foot and a half <laughs> long <laughs> pit bull or something. We don't actually we don't know, know what she we, is. We don't yet. know what she is. <laughs> yeah, um, Wade Davis is an amazing orator. Yeah, that guy can he can, he can entertain and spin an a tail, man. He's I, a wordsmith. He's That's, a wordsmith. Yeah. yeah, I was introduced to him when I first saw his TED talk, where he talk he talks about fa- um, the Eskimo that fashioned uh, a turd yeah, into, a, knife. into a knife. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're uh, 
we're trying to block the dog we're, from we're the hole. To, yeah, so we're putting a grapefruit <laughs> into a hole that the dog is trying to. Uh, I don't think dig. it's gonna work, but big problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so you guys, so you introduced he, you guys were introduced, and then he took you in. Was there yeah. a process of you trying to? like get in there with him or was he um, just nice enough to he was help? nice enough and i had a project in the works that okay. he thought would really work for national geographic okay which was <laughs> dog you're ruining our podcast don't you understand we're shaping hearts and minds around the world we're trying to talk about the great wordsmith wade davis yeah okay back to wade he um yeah he saw that i was working on a project invited me out to dc um i was in his basement for a couple of months, basically, um, scanning in his old slides. So he spent six years in the Amazon, and he was in Haiti, and he was in all these amazing places, but he had all these slides that had never been scanned. So I got to go through slide by slide, make selections, scan them in, you know, edit them, get them ready for presentations, and I'd be there while he was actually writing these these lectures that we're now seeing you know, on, on TED Talks and things like that. I was the guy that scanned a lot of those pictures in. Um, and in return, you know, if he was going into National Geographic that day, he'd take me with him, he'd introduce me around, and that's where my first project with National Geographic actually came from. Um, and I worked with him over a few years, and more than anything, he was a mentor. He didn't give me anything. Um, I definitely I worked quite a bit in his basement. Um, but, yeah, now he's in Canada, and I'm still in touch a little bit. But, um, Dude, tell him to come to the MOFAs this winter. I'd love to meet him. Was there anything that you uh, noticed about his process of um, speaking that allowed him to become the wordsmith that he is? And again, everyone, go check out Wade Davis because yeah. it's a sight to see. Like he, I would describe him as somewhat as like the Terrence McKenna of adventure. Yeah. I will say, even his emails, each word has been thought about. Nothing is in his lecture, nothing in his, is in his email that he hasn't put thought into. There's a reason behind it, all of it. Hmm. There's nothing extra. Um, and he's a master at making you visualize what he's telling you, right? He will search for that right word. And I once asked him if he uses thesauruses, and he scoffed at me, you know, like, no, they're thesauruses are for amateurs i still use a thesaurus right <laughs> yeah. but this guy i mean he's his house in washington dc was wall to wall all all around the house books and every book you picked up was the most fascinating book you've ever picked up right and he had every one of those books memorized i would just open a book and be like oh check out page 90 on that one that there's some really interesting stuff in there just like photographic memory or something wow know? Yeah. Um, because uh, you know Chris, Chris Ryan, and mm -hmm. and you guys were talking about Wade Davis, and he's like, "Oh, I've had Wade Davis on my podcast." He has. Yeah, he's <laughs> had Wade Davis on his podcast, and he said, when I met him and Wade started talking, he said, "You really talk like that." <laughs> yeah, he does. I mean, so it was interesting being in the house with Wade because you know sometimes I'd be there for a week and I would have barely had an interaction with him because when he works, he's just fully invested. He's, he's just, that's what's on his mind. But then all of a sudden, he'll turn that off for a minute, and you'll just have the most in-depth conversation of your life. And you'll talk about things you never really considered conversation material, you know? 
Um, and he'll, he'll give you a hundred percent at that point. Right. But the thing that I really learned was the true value is just in sitting and listening <laughs> his stories. I mean, I don't know if there's still adventure like that left in the world. Wow. That's so amazing, man. And, and what a great opportunity to really learn from those people that have, I mean, in some ways I, I, who've become real grown wise adults. Yeah. They're rare to find. You see a lot of grown-ups that are really kind of just children. They and they ha- but you can immediately recognize those people because uh, many times of the depth of conversation and how quickly they can go to the truth of something. Mm-hmm. And it's like what we were talking about earlier with the like the tallest building, but then there's just a pole on the top <laughs> of it. It's like no, fundamentally there's a that's a lie. Yeah, it's that's a half truth. Whereas you look at people like Wade Davis and they're very quickly able to find the center and the most important thing or ask the most important question. Yeah. And they've spent their lives doing that. I mean, Wade is, he's a botanist and he's an ethnographer and, you know, he is a PhD. He's not just somebody that's figured out how to have a conversation. He's somebody that's figured out how to research, how to learn and how to apply it. Um, And that, is what gets translated into his TED Talks in his books. Um, sometimes when you read his books, it almost feels like there's just too much coming at you because there's so much to tell. I get frustrated when I open a book and I feel like I understand the entire point of the book in the first chapter. Yeah. And then every other chapter is just supporting the first chapter. With his books, every page is like just a whole nother wealth of knowledge or you know visuals. Yeah, isn't that amazing when you can when you can tell if there was an idea that like there are certain ideas that should have been a tweet and it would have been a great tweet, yeah. but they try and expand it into a book. Yeah, and then there are certain ideas that were an article, but they could have been a series of books. Yeah, and it's it it it's hard to you know describe what those ideas are, but I think that I mean maybe it is kind of what we were talking about earlier is how many. Um, narratives do they fit in like is it man versus self man versus nature man mm-hmm. versus society or i don't know I, I actually don't know what the i'm i don't have i don't know we should write a book on that yeah <laughs> or a tweet we should, we should write a tweet <laughs> i mean we'll i'm a big op- fan of anything that can explain something in the fewest words possible right like to me that's good writing if you can if you can get the point of your book across in one page do it in a page right right um, I, you know who Richard Feynman is, right? Yep. Yeah, I mean, everybody should. I, and his book, uh, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, is one of my favorite books of all time. But I don't know if it was that book or one of his other books. He talks about um, learning how to get an A in writing. And it was, you know, he'd write something down and then he'd break it apart and he'd just start filling stuff in, just repeating it, saying it in a different way. And the next thing you know, he's winning like the writing awards in school. Um, and that's, that's what I think most authors do now. That's why I haven't found too many books I'm really enthralled with in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, I had a guy named, uh, Peter Atia. I think Peter Atia told me this. He was talking, he's, uh, um, a doctor and he was talking about Richard Feynman and he said that he took, um, he took, it, it was, 
a, like a three-minute speech where he takes you from basic arithmetic all the way to calculus in a, in a very short period of time. But he understands it all so completely that he yeah. can explain it simply in a way that, you know, most people, it would take them an entire book to explain all yeah. of that. But he does it, he takes the bare essence of each concept and can explain it uh, in a way that you can really understand. One of my favorite lectures from him was, I guess there was uh, a class he was teaching and they had some big test coming up. So we didn't want to like overload them with more knowledge the day before a test. So we just gave an interesting lecture. And he explained the orbits of the planets with a piece of string and some nails and described it geometrically, how to make an ellipse. Um, and people had been trying to do that for a long time, like understand the orbit of these planets and hadn't been able to do it geometrically. They'd only been able to do it mathematically. Um, and he just did it as like this, you know, 45 minute lecture. Yeah. <laughs> Simplify. Yeah. And like you can listen to it and understand how the planets are moving, you know, uh, just from listening to, to this lecture instead of having to go to school, like, 45 minutes. I think the real ability to understand something is displayed in your ability to teach it. Yep. My friend, this is so fun. <laughs> uh, where can people get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing? I mean, my website's the easiest, benhorton.biz, um, and all of the other stuff kind of can be found from there. All right. Well, I wish, wish you the best of luck on your future endeavors, uh, both in the sky and beneath the surface. Thank you, and I hope that uh, I can get you into paragliding so you can feel what it's like to drop into a three meter a second I, I would do thermal. it with you I would do it with you and when I'm getting into those kinds of sports I uh, am now very careful uh, with who I am learning from well, I've because got the best in, I've got the best instructor in the world okay. I did my research I'll take you up on that I trust you <laughs> alright my friend this is such a blast good talking to you that's our show. I'm going to play out with a song called Bazos by Amadeu and Miriam. They are a blind couple from the country of Mali, and they are one of my favorite bands right now. I will link to their band page in the show notes below. Thank you to everyone who gives this podcast a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. It takes about 30 seconds, and it is one of the best ways that you can support this show. Just give it a five-star rating or whatever rating you think it deserves, write a quick comment and it will help boost the visibility of this show. If you have comments, recommendations for new guests, you can go to my website, kyle.surf, go into the podcast section and write a comment. That's also where you can check out my book club. It's where you can check out the uh, products that I've been digging, uh, all my past documentaries, blog posts, everything, all at my website, kyle.surf. That's it for now. Hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoy this song called Bazos by Amadeu and Miriam. Yeah,
Sinenda bozo ne biwele, famanda bo.